verse 8 to chapter 8, verse 3 is our text this morning. It's, it's, it's really lengthy, um, but we'll give it a go. And um, I think it's important that in the providence of God that we've spent a good amount of time talking about missions. And I think that, that this portion of, of Acts... Um, shows us God's heart uh, towards missions. And it really helps us to grapple with uh, some of the, say, underbelly of local church ministry that may impede and, and prevent um, mission uh, from happening. And what I mean by mission, if you're new to church life, I mean, I would define it as taking the gospel and proclaiming it and taking the gospel and ministering to people that, that are outside of our circle. And to be honest, there's, there's a number of things in local church life that, that can impede that or prevent that from happening. And the text... Um, speaks, at least to my heart, of the difficulties that the early church faced and, in a very sobering way, shows how God advanced his heart uh, in spite of um, uh, the leadership uh, of, of the early church. So it's really a challenging text that has a lot of layers to it. Um, and I, and I hope that the Holy Spirit would, would speak to your heart and challenge you personally, but also to challenge us uh, corporately. So let's pray. We'll read some of the verses, and then we'll try to unpackage it. Um, and we'll try to do all that in 20 minutes. So, so Lord, I need your help. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. And Lord, where some of this might make us feel uncomfortable, I, I pray, Lord, that we would sit uh, and rest in that discomfort as we allow you to sanctify us, as we allow you to shape our hearts in a way that would reflect your heart. So our text uh, is Acts chapter 6. Let's Look at verse 8, Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen, if you remember, is just, um, he's just a waiter of tables. If, if he would be in our church, he would be the guy who makes the coffee. <laughs> and literally... Uh, no more than that, and no less than that. It's an important function if you like coffee, right? It's an important function that he was fulfilling for the widows, the Greek widows that were in need of food. So it's an important function, but it is just that. It is a waiter of tables. That's who he is. Note this. He is not an apostle. 
yet, look at how his ministry is described. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, these people were from Asia Minor. They're from modern-day Turkey. The, cap, uh, the capital city of Cilicia, anybody want to take a guess? Apostle Paul's from there. Tarsus. And so it's important to note that because as we get to the end of the text, it is Saul who's watching. It is Saul who's giving assent to the stoning of Stephen. It's important to note, and we'll tie this all together, that they, they were living in modern-day Turkey, and yet they chose to move to Jerusalem. And that is significant. Significant for understanding the why all of this happened. And that's where we need to get to quickly. Like, why did all this happen? Back to the, to the text. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they were secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up what? A false witness. So these freedmen, they, uh, they were offended to the point that they would violate Torah. They were offended that they would so much so that they violated the law. Take note. And they sent a false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. And so the holy place is the temple that they are referring to, the temple in Jerusalem. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us, and gazing at him, all who sat in that council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said and answered and gave a sermon. That's at least what I can determine is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And in Stephen's sermon which goes from uh, 7.2 seven, seven all the way to verse 53, Stephen does this. Stephen defines the true meaning of the three pillars, um, of the three things that represent piety or religious fervor, Stephen comes and he gives a proper 
definition and purpose to three things. The first thing he talks about is the land, that the land was given to Abraham as covenantal. In other words, free grace. The Lord calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to give you this land as an inheritance for you and your offspring. And the Lord gives it to her. Second thing that Stephen defines in his lengthy sermon is he gives a proper understanding or he begins to talk about the giving of Torah, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, which were primarily, almost exclusively, written by who? Moses. You've seen the movie, Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments, right? Good movie to watch. I think it's about 60 years old now. But it's a good show. And then the third thing he begins to discuss with them is the temple where God meets humanity, discloses himself. And in your notes, you'll see that the, these three things, the giving of the land, the giving of the law, and the giving of the temple, as you track through them, and it's all in your notes, you track through them, they unify both Old and New Testament. So for the temple, for example, if we define it as where God communes with humanity, we would come to see that the first temple was in the Garden of Eden. But there was no building. Fast forward to Revelation. You'll get the answer there. There's no building, but God communes. Then we see the tabernacle, right? It's a, this mobile thing that moves around. Then we see the physical temple that's in Jerusalem. And I guess we could add in the end time temple, but eventually we get to the end of Revelation where there's a new heaven and new earth and the temple's restored as it is, as it was in the book of Genesis. And so you look at these three pillars of piety of Judaism and they unify both Old and New Testament. And here's the thing that Stephen gets at. Look at verse 51. Stephen says this to who? Who is he talking to? He's talking to Greek-speaking Jews that immigrated back to Jerusalem. He's speaking to people that that have made a significant life decision to relocate. And he's speaking to a group of Jewish believers who identify with these three pillars, and he uses language from the Old Testament to tell them that you have not embraced God's heart for these three things in the way God has revealed himself to Israel. He uses Old Testament language calling them a stiff-necked people who have resisted the work of the Holy Spirit just like their fathers did. And what was their response? Oh, praise the Lord. No. 
they were cut to the heart. Because when God gave the land to Abraham, that promise was not only for, for Abraham, but it was for all his, all his offspring. And his offspring is defined by Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. And so when he moved from Ur and followed God, it's credited to him as righteousness. And what Stephen drills down on is, is your devotion to the land is only a picture of our devotion to Christ. And the righteousness that was given to Abraham was, it was given by faith and all those who respond to the Messiah by faith are counted as what? As inheritors of what God gave to Abraham. Secondly, when they, they elevate the law, the law was never meant to achieve righteousness because righteousness is achieved by what? Faith. And then we come to the temple, and the temple Jesus defines as that my father's house will be called a house of prayer and they made it into a marketplace and the economic engine or one aspect of the economic engine of Jerusalem. And so Stephen comes to them and says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart, in ears you always resist in the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Who's he talking about here? Jesus. You also received the law as delivered by angels and did not what? Keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions, Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, and devout men buried Stephen. Why? Why does God choose Stephen? The reason is, is that he's not an apostle. He's not an elder. He's a what? He's a nobody. Except this. He has a heart for God. He's devout. He's godly. He wants to serve the Lord. And the Lord looks down at Stephen and says, I like this guy. And, and Stephen receives what no man can produce. Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit and begins operating in apostolic authority and power with signs and wonders. What's the implications for us for missions? Are you a godly person? Do you have a heart for God? It's like David. He took David from just tending sheep 
and he made him king of Israel. And he, and he pastored God's people with integrity of heart and skillful hands. Who does God use on mission? God looks, his eyes roam, Ezekiel, his eyes roam to and fro across the whole world seeking to embrace and empower those that have a heart after him. Why did God choose Stephen? Because he was not an apostle. What was wrong with the apostles and elders of the church? Well, you have to look at just a few scriptures that precede this. Come with me to Acts chapter 5 and in verse 20, 33. When they heard this, they were, all, they were enraged, Peter and John, and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. What happened? There's a peace that came because Gamaliel came in and cut a truce with the apostles and elders of the church. And peace came, and what happened to the church? It exploded. It grew. It flourished. Take a look at the text. The end of verse 5, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not uh, cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Now, I have to tell you that if that happened today in our church, I'd be like, yeah, we're good. Yeah, the house is packed. Every time someone comes in the door, I hear cha-ching, cha-ching, the offering's full. God is with us. What's the implications for mission? The church didn't, we're talking, you know, it's almost, it almost sounds heretical, doesn't it? It must be. But the apostles and elders and the church didn't stay on mission. What happened in Acts chapter 6? A dispute arose amongst the Hellenist widows. And by implication is that the church began to shift their focus from mission to internal problems. But the apostles and elders, they rescued the day. They sought the Lord. The people agreed. The seven, they selected seven men of character to do what? To make coffee. You say, well, Ed, that sounds like, like you're making fun of them. No, it's no more or no less. They were waiting on tables. It's like when you go out to lunch, if you go out to lunch this afternoon, and you go to a restaurant and someone waits on you and takes your order and gives you your meal, that's who we're talking about. But they get it right, and what happens to the church again? Thank you. 
it explodes. It just, it's amazing. Everything's right. Everything's good. But they began to take the focus off the radical grace and the heart of God to fulfill Acts 1.8. And you can see that in Acts chapter 10, Peter and Cornelius. Peter goes, the, the text says that Peter was amazed that the Holy Spirit was given to who? To the Gentiles. There's no way this is our stuff. How can God give the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles? Then we see the great council at Jerusalem. And they're trying to decide, are the Gentiles in? Are the Gentiles out? And, they, and there was a great demand that all male Gentiles should be what? Just looking to see if there's any little kids here. I don't, I don't want them to go home and, Dad, what, Mom, what's circumcision? And here's the heart of it. It wasn't God's heart. Because Acts 1.8 was to take the gospel, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to where? To whole, the whole world. But they were fixated on who's in and who's out based upon the law. But the fulfillment of the law, Jesus says, who is the fulfillment of the law, according to Jesus? He is. Faith in him. One last thing, why? Why Stephen? Why the persecution? These freemen, we would define them as, in uh, Jesus' time, New Testament time, they would be called National zealots. Zealots for the nation. As defined by what? Land, law, and temple. Not faith in God. Not an imputed righteousness. But national identity was more important then the inclusion of the Gentiles and the proclamation of the gospel, read Galatians. O ye foolish Galatians, having begun in the spirit, now trying to be made perfect in the flesh. Why Stephen? He wasn't one of the boys club. Why persecution? Why Stephen's theology of that Christ is the completion or the fulfillment of the law of the land and of the temple? Why Stephen's theology? And the answer to that is that the church, the apostles and the elders, they got off mission. 
And God decided in his own sovereignty to restore his heart to the church. And he took a nobody, a godly man, and filled him with his spirit that went out and proclaimed that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. And if we have faith in him, he imputes to us a righteousness so that we stand pure and holy before God based upon what Messiah Jesus has done for us. And in practical terms, what was severed was Christianity was severed from the ritualistic law and the ritualistic understanding of the temple worship and Christianity was set free in a forcible way into the whole world. Who's watching? Saul's watching. Who's giving consent? Oh, he... He's from Tarsus. He's from Cilicia. He's with the guys. They, they got the club, but they don't have the heart of God. And at this point, the early church didn't have that heart, nor did they understand that this gospel was for all people. This gospel was to be proclaimed to the whole world. And God sent a nobody to stir the pot up in such a way that there was no coming back. And the gospel expanded to the whole nation. Saul's watching in just another chapter. We know that he's going from house to house, synagogue to synagogue, arresting men, women, and children, and putting them where? In jail. Why? Because he has a passion for the law and the land and the temple, but it's a passion birthed out of the flesh and not out of the heart and not out of the grace of God. And, and in Acts chapter 9, Saul gets knocked off his horse, and he says, he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he goes to straight street, and again, a nobody, Ananias, goes to him, and the Lord says, go tell this guy how much he's going to suffer and how he's going to be my apostle to the Gentiles. When we look at the implications for missions for us as a local church, it's a little troubling as a pastor. Because as a pastor, you tend to be focused on your own stuff. Like, how's the church doing, you know? You know, you call up Rob, how's the budget? Talk to small group leaders, who's attending? Talk to the worship leader. Any visitors last Sunday when I wasn't there? I don't know. (laughs) You're interested in your own stuff. I give you a real example. Manchester got flooded. Manchester, our campus in Manchester, got flooded out. 
we're sending a team to Vermont. The little voice inside my head goes, ooh, do we really want to do that? Can't we use those resources up in Manchester? Maybe we shouldn't be sending teams up there. Shouldn't we take care of our own house? See, when we're honest with our own sinful dispositions, when we can name them and put them out, then we're available to be transformed and get God's heart for mission and to get God's heart for things that are outside of us that we'll never benefit from. But let me say, You never know who's watching. You never know who will be transformed. Like Saul, you know? Let me rescue myself from that story and at least appear somewhat godly. God's the keeper of accounts. So let's not shy away from missions and helping people. Manchester had a great need. It has a lesser need now. Out of your purse, you gave $16,000 to Manchester. Unbeknownst to us, we got a check on Friday. We are sending teams on a BCN mission trip. On Friday, we get a check from unsolicited from us from BCNE for $10,000. That loan we talked about, gone. The thing that's left up there is, is we gotta figure out the flooring. But the reconstruction and all that, God's the keeper of accounts. The apostles and the elders of Jerusalem and we could all say, rightly so, that's their job. They were taking care of the church. But God had a bigger plan. God wanted the whole world to experience redemption in Jesus Christ. And he took a nobody to bring it about. You can be that nobody. There's a guy, D.L. Moody, just a shoe salesman. Right, Ben? Shoe, shoe guy in Boston. Gets saved by a Sunday school teacher. I think the quote is, God has not yet seen what he'll do through one person that's fully yielded to him. Stephen was that person. I would like to be that person. I'd invite you to think about that. To approach life like this, knowing that God keeps accounts.
and that he's only looking for a heart that's fully yielded to him, that can be a container for his spirit in dwelling with power so that the world might know. If you're a young person in my midst or you're listening online, be that person. Make that commitment. Study God's word. Say, God, fill me so I can change the world. That's Stephen. That quality of heart is what I sense God would want me to land. I hope it in your heart too. Amen? Let's prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's table this morning and remember the greatness of Christ in our hearts and in our lives.